Well, we're beginning a new series today in the Gospel of Mark that we're calling The Lion Roars. And uh, we'll be explaining that title a little bit more as it unfolds because we're going to see the power of the coming of the kingdom of God in the person of Jesus in these early chapters of Mark. So we're going to be focusing on that. But I, um, what I want to do this morning is kind of set the book up, set the series up this morning. And, and uh, let me just begin this way. Jesus never wrote an autobiography. Jesus, as a, as, a, as, a, as a man, never wrote a book. And so the Spirit of God selected, selected four men to write histories of Jesus, his life, his ministry, his death, and his resurrection. Uh, the Spirit of God selected four men, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, to write and chronicle uh, the life and the work of Jesus Christ. And so these men wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And we see Peter referring to this in 2 Peter chapter 1. I'll just read it, read it quickly to you. Uh, For no prophecy, that is no scripture, was ever produced by the will of man, he says. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so, and so we see that the, the authors of scripture are writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so when you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, even though their accounts were written independent of each other, and they were written at different times and in different places, what you notice in the four Gospels is there is a magnificent harmony about them. They fit together, they fit together perfectly to to really paint for us the picture of the person and the work of Christ. And so, so what we would attribute that to is the divine authorship of the Gospels, the Holy Spirit. And it's clear that the divine author superintended the human authors to give us the Word of God. And so really the Gospels are the story of the incarnation of Jesus from four different perspectives. And so we're going to be looking at the Gospel of Mark, which is obviously uh, Mark's account of Jesus. And this Gospel is unique among the, four, among the, uh, among the three other Gospels. So, um, and so what we kind of see from this is that the, from the first uh, maybe 10 to 20 years after the resurrection of Jesus, it really wasn't as important for there to be a written record of the gospel account. And the reason why is because you had so many eyewitnesses who were alive and testifying to the things that they saw Jesus do and the things that they, they heard Jesus teach. But, but right around the mid-century, it became really important that the, that the gospel record be written down. And so the Holy Spirit selects these four men, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, to do that, to write down the, record, the written record of Christ. So Matthew's gospel was written around 50 to 60 AD. And then, and then Luke's gospel was written 60 to 63 AD. And then John's gospel was the last one. It was written in 90 AD. And so, and so we put Mark's gospel there between Matthew and Luke's. So it was like second. Now, what's interesting, you would think that because the Gospel of Mark was the second Gospel written uh, chronologically, that it would hold a higher place in our minds and hearts of, of popularity and importance. But, it, but Mark's Gospel always kind of ends up in last place. It's kind of the, the Gospel that's the afterthought. And uh, I was telling my brother-in-law that we were kicking off a series on the Gospel of Mark, and he asked me, Scott, why Mark? You know, he was, like, was kind of surprised. 
And I was like, well, it's a book of the Bible. That's one reason. Um, um, but let me, let me kind of answer that question because I think what we don't realize is we, we kind of ignore this gospel. And I think part of the reason why is uh, it is obviously different. It does not contain the discourses of Jesus and it doesn't contain the theology uh, about Jesus that the other gospels have. So, so what I mean by that is the gospel of John is the most theological. And what John does is he takes the I am statements and he takes the miracles of Jesus. And he, from that, he paints a, a beautiful picture of Christology, of, of, of really who Christ is and what he came to do. Now, Matthew and Luke are a little bit different but because they contain more of the discourses of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus. But Mark... Mark really doesn't have those discourses. And Mark doesn't have this developed theology to it. Um, you've got some discourses in Mark in probably two chapters. But by and large, Mark is an action gospel. It moves quickly. It starts fast and it ends hard and it moves with, with great pace. You could call it a newspaper edition, if you will. And the reason why it's this way is, is just simply understanding who Mark's audience was going to be. Most people in the ancient world were illiterate, especially in the city of Rome. And so Mark is writing this gospel for those in Rome. And he's writing it so that it will be read. And as it's read, it will be understood and people will pay attention. So that's a part of the stylistic difference that we're going to notice as we go through this. And uh, really, when you think about it, Mark is writing from the vantage point to try to convince us Jesus is the Son of God. That's his purpose in writing. In fact, that's, that's really Matthew's purpose and John's purpose and Luke's purpose as well. So, so just kind of know that as we go into this. And, um, and you'll understand why this gospel is a little bit different in everything uh, that we're reading. So what we like to do here is we stand out of reverence for the reading of God's word. So I'm going to ask if you're willing and able, would you please stand? We're going to read one verse today so you won't be standing very long. So, um, so we're going to read together Mark chapter 1, verse 1. And Mark records this, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ the Son of God. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but not the Word of God. It lasts forever. You may be seated. See, I told you it was going to be short today, you know. <laughs> now, if you think the sermon's going to be short, you're going to the wrong place, so you already know that. So really this first line, if you, if you study it, uh, the Bible commentators will say that first line really serves as the title. It serves as the theme of the entire gospel. It's fascinating uh, because you'll notice that Mark really doesn't sign the gospel. He doesn't put his name in there. Uh, there's, there's not an appearance of Mark in the gospel. And that's really interesting. And uh, part of that, you see this, uh, John makes an appearance in John's gospel. It's a very small, uh, very short appearance there. But I think you see this characteristic in the gospel accounts. They are... They are really wanting to keep the spotlight on Jesus. They don't, they're not trying to step in and say, in any way, this is about me. They're trying to share the greatest news in the history of the world, and they don't want anything to detract from that, not even their authorship, not even their, their very presence. 
And so they're really trying to keep the spotlight. So, so the question that I had was, who is, who is Mark? Who was this guy? Was he a pastor? Was he a preacher? Was he a prophet? Was he a church planter? Was he uh, you know, a missionary or evangelist? Who was he? Well, the answer to that is this. He was really an ordinary guy that God used in an extraordinary way. That's who Mark is, and that's, who, that's exactly what we're going to see. Just an ordinary guy that God used in an extraordinary way. I think that there's a temptation for us as we read the Scripture to kind of hold the Bible characters in, an, in such high esteem that it's not really realistic. I, I think part of our challenge is we see the Bible characters as super committed, super faith, super spiritually elite and we view them in this way and it almost makes them unaccessible to us because our, our, our thought is, our impression is they didn't really struggle in faith. They didn't have doubts. They didn't have failures. And, uh, and so it's really a misreading of what's going on in the scripture. I think if we slow down and start digging into it, we start seeing um, their humanity, what we really see is that the Bible characters were weak and flawed people. And I think what we see from, from really Mark's story is that God chooses to work through weak and flawed people because weak and flawed people are all that there are to work through. And that is exactly Mark's story, and that's what we're going to dig in today. Mark is a character who who really has the devotion to do great things for God, and he does, which we're going to see. Uh, but he also went through a season of failure in his relationship with God. He struggled. Uh, but that struggle did not define him. And I love that because you know what? We struggle. And our struggles and our sins and our weaknesses and our past and our failures, church, do, they do not define us. The grace of God is what defines us. And that's the story of Mark, and that's why he's writing this gospel. It's pretty amazing when you think about it. And so his life is similar to ours because his life was filled with highs and lows. His life was filled with joys and pains and failures and successes, even for, you know, for the entire world to see. So here's what I want to do this morning. I want to do something just kind of a little different. I, I want to show us a lot of scripture today. So I really want you to stay dialed in with me because I, I promise you we're going to go, we're, we're going somewhere today. But I want to answer really the question, what kind of person does God use? What kind of person does God use? If, if God works through weak and flawed people, then, then, then what kind of weak and flawed people does he work through? Well, that's the question we're going to try to answer. Number one, let me just share this with you. God uses people who are available. God uses people who are available, right? Now, Mark does not show up in the Gospels. Where we learn about Mark is in the book of Acts. So if you want to turn over to Acts chapter 12, you can, you can do that. I'll have the passages on the, on the screen behind me. But let me just kind of set it up this way. Peter is in prison, and uh, he's in prison for preaching the Gospel. And Herod was persecuting the church. He was killing some of the members of the church. And, and so Peter's in prison. And the church was earnestly praying for Peter. And as, as he was sleeping in his jail cell one night, an angel of the Lord shows up and wakes Peter up and says, Peter, get dressed, get your sandals on, we're busting out of here tonight. And so immediately the chains fall off of him, the prison doors open up, 
the angel of the Lord tells him, follow me out of here. He follows him out of here. The entire time, he's thinking he's dreaming. And, and so the prison doors open, the gates open, and before he knows it, he's, he's, in, the, he's in the streets of Jerusalem, and he kind of comes to and realizes God has rescued him from prison. And so that's where we see it in Acts 12, verse 12. This is where we begin to find out who Mark is. Let me show this to you. When he realized this, this is Peter, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. Now, that's all that's said. Peter goes to the house of Mary, and the reason why it's, it's called or described the house of Mary is probably because she was a widow, and then the way that, you know, Mary was a common name. So the way that the Luke, the author of Acts, delineates this Mary is she's the mother of John Mark. And that's the first that we see of him. And so there's, not a, there's nothing said about John Mark. There's nothing special about him. That, you know, he's not in particularly impressive or gifted. And he's probably just a teenager. He's probably, I don't know, maybe 17, you know, years old at this time. So Peter goes to this house and I think what we, what we can kind of learn from this, according to the commentators, it's this, that this was a regular meeting place of the early Christians. So Peter didn't need anybody to take him to this house. He just knew where it was because he had been to this house many times because this is where the early, the early church was, was meeting. They were meeting in this house pretty regularly. So what that would mean is that Peter knew John Mark and John Mark knew Peter, which would be really, really important. And so, so Peter goes to this house, he's knocking on the gate, on the outer gate, you know, he's kind of yelling on the inside, and then the servant girl Rhoda runs out to see who it is, and she hears the voice of Peter, and she's overjoyed, I mean, she's floored, she's so ecstatic, she doesn't even open the gate, she turns and runs back in, because she wants to tell everybody the great news, and she goes in and tells them the great news, she says, Peter's out there, and you know what they say? They say, Rhoda, you're out of your mind. Now, what's funny about that to me is they're gathering to pray for his release. And they're getting on her for, you know, being out of her mind. Um, I just think that's pretty funny to me. I don't know. They're in there praying that God would release her and God would release Peter. And he does, and they don't even believe that he's doing it. So um, it sounds a lot like how I pray sometimes, if I could just be honest about that. Uh, we're praying for stuff, but we're not really expecting God to do anything. And so, so this, is where we, this is where we meet John Mark. And I think just from those set of facts that we've shared is I think what we see here is he's available. That the kind of person God can use is a person who's just available to be used. John Mark is meeting with the early Christians. Wherever they meet, that's where he's going to be. It was a priority for him. Fellowship, worship, corporate prayer, you know, corp the corporate gathering of a church was a, was, a, was a primary commitment for this teenage guy. And he's available to be used. Not only that, they're at his house. So he and his mom are busy serving everybody, taking care of everybody's needs as they are, as they're gathering in his house. And I think, I think the principle's pretty simple. We're all so busy. We all have a lot of different things going. And sometimes 
even in the midst of our busyness, there are a lot of distractions and we're really not thinking about God's agenda, we're just thinking about ours. And we're not really thinking about being used of him and being servants because we're so dialed in to what we think we need to accomplish. And I think the kind of person that God uses is a person that says every morning, God, this day belongs to you and however you want to interrupt my schedule today is fine with me because I'm here to serve you. I'm here to be used of you, to pray for someone, to, 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 to minister at church in some way, to serve my neighbor, to serve my family in whatever way. God, I'm, I'm here to be used by you. And I think this is where we see John Mark. And, um, and so I think the question is for, for all of you, are you available for God to use you anytime God pleases? Are you willing to let God work through you and interrupt your schedule at the same time? that's kind of a big thing so I think that's the first thing that we see in John Mark is he's available number two God uses people who are humble God uses people who are humble now let me kind of set it up this way Barnabas and Paul you know they are busy preaching and going on you know trying to build up the church so they're coming from Antioch to the city of Jerusalem with a specific purpose They've taken up an offering from the church in Antioch to give to the Christians in Jerusalem because there's a famine in the land. And uh, that kind of thing always hurts and hits, you know, those who are poor more than anybody else. So, so this collection was made and, and Paul and Barnabas are coming down from Antioch to deliver it. And so we see, we see another appearance of Mark in Acts 12 verse 25. Notice Notice what it says. So Paul and Barnabas and Saul, or Paul, returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. So Paul and Barnabas come down from Antioch to Jerusalem. They do what they need to do, and then they're heading back up to Antioch, and they decide to take with them John Mark. And this is another indication of his usefulness and his character as a person. Was John Mark a preacher? Nope. Was he a pastor? Nope. Was he a prophet? Nope. Uh, he's, not, he's not even really a church leader. He's just an ordinary guy who's available and who's humble and willing to be used. Now, if he's not extraordinarily gifted, why are they taking him? Well, I, I think Colossians 4.10 tells us because Colossians 4.10 tells us he was the cousin of Barnabas. So Barnabas knew him and uh, knew his gifts, knew his character, knew, you know, knew all of that. As Paul and, and Barnabas were traveling, they needed help with logistics. You know, there's a lot, of, a lot of work that needed to be done. There's a lot of work that needs to be done in ministry. So, they, so John Mark goes back to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. And you see this in Acts 13 verse 1. Let me, let me just kind of show this one to you. This is really interesting. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. Okay, that's an interesting friendship there. And then Saul. Okay, so what's interesting is the key players in the church at Antioch are listed. But John Mark's not listed. 
because he's not really a key player. He's just a servant. He's just a humble guy. He's not a pastor. He's not a preacher. He's, you know, he's not, not a prophet. He's not, not, not any of that. He's just, he's just helping out. He's just helping out Paul and Barnabas. Look at, look at verse 2. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. And then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and then sent them off. This is going to be the first Paul's missionary journey, his first missionary journey. All right, so, so notice, notice what it says, verse 4. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John, John Mark, to assist them. Now again, we get another picture here of his willingness to serve. He's assisting them, which means that He's probably running errands. He's probably setting up tents. He's probably running into the city to get food. He's probably praying for Paul and Barnabas as they're preaching and teaching, as they're conducting their ministry. He's doing all of these things. So what is it that we see? We see this. God uses people who are humble and willing to be used. And see, humility is really just a a trait of saying, it's not about me. I'm just here to help. And whatever need needs to be met, I will meet that need because it's not about me. And and I think that's what we see in John Mark. He is on the lookout for how he can help, you know, further the kingdom of God through through his ministry and and through his serving. So, So he's not a pastor, he's not a prophet, he's not a, you know, he's not a preacher, he's not any of that. But man, he's making a big difference because he's supporting Paul and Barnabas in their ministry. And, you know, John Wesley, the great, British preacher of the 1700s, you know, he said, if you want to be used by God, he said this, he said, do all the good you can by all the means that you can, in all the ways that you can, in all the places that you can, at all the times that you can, to all the people that you can, as long as you ever can. And that's humility. That's where You just live with a God focus and you live with an other's focus. That's humility. And that's what we see in John Mark. And really, Jesus says, it's really called greatness is what it is. Because he says, you know, in the kingdom of heaven, the last will be first. And and I think that's, that's what humility really is. It's doing little things as if they're great things because God sees all things. That's, that's humility. Now, the, the third and last one, and it's going to get, it's going to get more complex here. God uses people who are changeable. He uses people who are available and who are humble, but God uses people who are changeable, who are transformable. They're growable. That's who God uses. In fact, let me, let me put it this way. God uses people who are willing to grow from their failures. That's who God uses. All right, so Paul, Barnabas, and John Mark are on this journey. They're preaching the gospel. They're ministering. They're evangelizing. They're trying to reach people and disciple people for Christ. Ministry is warfare. So anytime you're involved in ministry, 
the enemy is not just going to sit back and watch that happen without any kind of resistance or opposition. So these guys experience a tremendous amount of, of opposition, you know, from Satan and from people. You just read the book of Acts. You can see, I mean, everywhere they went, they started riots in the city. And, uh, and so they accounted a lot of heavy opposition. In fact, in Acts 13, verse 8, they run into a guy named Elimus, who's a magician. And uh, he is called the son of a devil. And uh, he's also called an enemy of righteousness. So uh, that's his character. And he's working to oppose Paul and Barnabas. And we don't know exactly what was going on there, but he was making their ministry very difficult and very challenging. Not only that, but just, but just traveling back then was, was extremely challenging. I mean, they didn't have Waffle House on the side of the interstate back then. So, so you know, uh, that, was, that was really hard. So, so let me just show it to you this way. Acts 13, 13. And you see kind of something, you know, just bad happening here. Now, Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Persia and Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Persia and came to Antioch. Now, what did John do there? John leaves them. John Mark abandons them. And uh, we don't know why. We don't know the circumstances behind this. But he absolutely deserts them. He's like, I'm not doing this anymore. I can't do it anymore. We don't know if their lives were being threatened. We, we don't know what kind of opposition, you know, that they, that they were encountering. All we know is John Mark deserts his post as the assistant to Paul and Barnabas. He walks out on them when they needed him the most. And he disappears. And so apparently it was a weak moment for him. It was a lack of courage, it was a lack of commitment, it was a lack of endurance, or some combination of all three. But basically, John Mark just quits and walks away. And he doesn't go back to Antioch, uh, because that's not going to land well with, with the church at Antioch, because they had supported these guys and supported John Mark so that he could be the assistant to the two preachers. So he's not going to go back there. What he does is he goes back to Jerusalem and he, and he kind of falls off the radar for a few years. And so that's where we have it. John, John Mark's not been an issue. We, we don't know kind of what, what he's doing, but we just know that he is, he is apparently back in Jerusalem. Now, Paul and Barnabas, you know, they finished their missionary journey. A couple of years have passed. And they're considering a second missionary journey. And they're kind of talking about how this is going to go. And uh, they're thinking about we need to go back and check on the churches, check on, you know, the plants that they've made. Um, and, and so they bring up the topic of John Mark because apparently John Mark is back on the scene. And Paul has not forgotten his desertion. Paul has not forgotten his defection. And let me show this to you in Acts 15 verse 30, verse 36, because this is really interesting. And after some day, and, a, and after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in the city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and, and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but, thought, but Paul thought it best not to take with him the one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and who had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement. 
Now, do you realize what's happening there? There's a disagreement among church leaders, Paul and Barnabas. Barnabas is insisting that John Mark goes with them. And Paul is insisting, no, he's not. We're not taking him with us. He is a liability. He deserted us. He defected on us. He walked out on us. He was, you know, he was, he's not, he's not strong enough for this work. He should not go with us. And so that's kind of the essence of the disagreement between Paul and Barnabas. And so, and, and, and so this causes a lot of tension. I mean, not only is the relationship between John Mark and the Apostle Paul strained, but now it's spilling over and straining the relationship between Paul and Barnabas. And so what Luke tells us is in verse 39, so they separated from each other. They had to, they had to agree to disagree. And, and Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commanded by the brothers, um, commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. So you can see there's a disagreement over this. This is, this is big time stuff. And, uh, and Paul is not having anything to do with it because of whatever happened specifically there in Pamphylia. Now, 10 years have passed. So we're going to fast forward 10 years. So I'm just giving you kind of the overview of this. And Mark shows up again. He shows up another time. Let me show it to you in Colossians 4. Uh, this is 4 chapter 10. Now, Paul is in prison. We've talked about that in the past. He had two imprisonments. This is the first imprisonment. They released him. He was able to do some ministry. He went back into, into, into imprisonment a second time. It was during this first imprisonment that the Apostle Paul writes the letters of Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon. Let me show it to you. Colossians 4.10. Paul's writing this from prison. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas concerning whom you've received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. Now, this is interesting because what Paul is doing is sending Mark to the church at Colossae, and he's saying, welcome him. And uh, apparently, that relationship has been reconciled. Apparently, that relationship has been restored because, because John Mark is with the Apostle Paul. Notice this. Epa this is Philemon 23. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. He just names it. Mark's first on the list. So if you're, if, if you're not following what I'm saying here, is I, I'm saying this. Paul and John Mark have been reconciled. That relationship has been reconciled. And uh, they are, John Mark is serving again, and he's serving alongside the Apostle Paul, which is amazing when you think about it. So apparently John Mark has matured, he's learned from his weaknesses, he's owned them. And what, as I think about this, this is a great reminder for all of us that people grow and change. People grow and change. People mature. And, and they do that because the work of God in people's hearts is the work of sanctification, growing and changing them. And the truth is, all of us are a work in progress. All of us are. God is not done with us. If you are not dead, he is not done. Can I get an amen to that? And so, and so apparently, 
God has blessed this relationship between Paul and John Mark after 10 years, after, after this huge disagreement, after this huge blow up, this huge failure. Now, how long did this relationship last? Well, let me show you 2 Timothy chapter 4. This is Paul's second imprisonment. Paul is at the end of his life and he's writing to the young pastor Timothy. Notice what he says. Do your best to come to me soon for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia, Luke alone is with me. And then notice what he says, get Mark and bring him with you for he is very useful to me in ministry. Now this is mind blowing church because as I think about this, what Paul is asking for is he's asking for Mark to come to his side because Paul knows he's gonna die. And he wants his close confidant, which is John Mark now, to be by his side before he gets beheaded, which is exactly what would have, have happened to him, what did happen to him. And uh, I think it's just pretty amazing how this relationship's been restored. And as I think about our day and age, you know, we, we live in a time, we live in a time in our culture where cancer cult, or not cancer culture, but cancel culture is pretty prominent. And what I mean by that is we think of it in terms of politicians and celebrities that get canceled, but what often happens in relationships today is there's a conflict, there's a failure, there's a misunderstanding, there's some kind of issue, and it divides two people, and we just end the friendship. We just end it. We just walk away, and uh, that's called cancel culture, and uh, it happens so much. It's ha it happens so much in this day and age. We, we treat relationships as if they're disposable. And we discard them. And I think Paul and John Mark show us that relationships are worth restoring. That people matter. Love matters. Relationships matter. And I think that what we see is life is learning, learning how to love each other through each other's change and sanctification process. And so God wants us to value relationships with each other, not, not give up on them when there's a rift, there's a hurt, there's a conflict, there's some kind of issue, you know. He wants us to work them out. But I think a lot, for a lot of us, it's just easy to say, ah, that's nothing. I'm just giving up on it, just walking away. You know, the Apostle Paul reminded the Corinthian Christians, he said, you know, God has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That's what God's given us. Jesus said in the Sermon on the, on the Mount, blessed are the peacemakers. And when you think about a peacemaker, it's really someone who works for peace. And, and so what that means to me is that relationships take a lot of hard work, don't they? And uh, when it's so much easier to discard them and to give up on them, what we need to do is lean in and, and work them out. So whatever happened 10 years earlier between John Mark and the Apostle Paul, Apparently, John Mark owned it, confessed it, took responsibility from it, reconciled with Paul, and let God grow him through it. And that's why God is using John Mark in an amazing way. God uses people who are changeable. And that in itself is a beautiful picture of grace 
and the gospel in relationships. Now, I, I think it's a pretty amazing thing. I mean, you think about this. John Mark's not a preacher, not a pastor, not a prophet, not a church planner. You know, he's not a teacher. Uh, he's just a helper. That's all he is. And uh, he has been given the privilege of being alongside the Apostle Paul and becoming, he becomes the Apostle Paul's greatest confidant. And uh, it's pretty amazing. And again, it brings us back to what kind of person does God use? He uses weak and flawed people because that's the only kind of people there are to use. He uses he uses restored deserters. He uses recovered defectors. He uses and works through sinners because that's the only kind of people that there are. Now, I think it would be an amazing privilege to be the Apostle Paul's right-hand man. That would be, that would be pretty incredible. But the story of John Mark does not end there. Because John Mark is not only the Apostle Paul's right-hand man, but he's also the Apostle Peter's right-hand man. Think about that. The two greatest apostles. And John Mark is right there, close confidants of both of them. How do I know that? Well, we know that because in that 10-year period, when John Mark left Paul and, and eventually Barnabas, where did he go? He went to Jerusalem. And who was ministering in Jerusalem? Peter was. And guess who was discipling John Mark? Peter. How do I know this? Let me show it to you. First Peter 5.13. Notice what uh, Peter writes about this. Okay, She, um, that word she, he's referring to the church. So she is the reference to the church. She, she the church, who is at Babylon... Okay, so he's using, a, Babylon is a code word for Rome because the Christian persecution was so intense. So he didn't want to use real names or real places. So he's using code, but the Christians he was writing to knew exactly what he was talking about. So the church who's at Babylon, uh, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son. Now, what is he talking about there? He calls Mark his son. He wasn't his physical son. Do you know what he was? He was his spiritual son. This was somebody that Peter discipled. Peter trained in him. Peter invested in him. And, and, so, and so what we know is Peter spent a year in Rome himself. And he preached the gospel. And John Mark was with him every step of the way. Not only the 10 years in Jerusalem, but also that year that, year that uh, Peter was in Rome. And so, and so apparently he was Peter's assistant as Peter was preaching the gospel. Now, you ask Scott, why in the world is all of that important? I will tell you why that's important. Mark's gospel. Mark's gospel Guess who the source of Mark's gospel was? Guess who the eyewitness was that Mark used to write the stories of Jesus in Mark's gospel? You know who it is? It's Peter. Peter was the eyewitness. Peter had a front, front, front row seat. 
Peter heard everything Jesus said and did. And, and so John Mark's following him around for years, listening to everything he said and writing it down and making notes. And so uh, it's pretty incredible kind of when you think about it because Mark's not a preacher. He's not a pastor. He's not a prophet. He's not a big time, you know, church leader. Uh, he's, he's, he's not even a teacher. He's just a helper. And God called him to write the gospel according to Mark. Isn't that amazing? What kind of people does God use? Weak and flawed people. Because that's the only kind of people they're already use. You think about Matthew as a gospel writer. He was a tax collector. He was a tax cheat. He stole from his own countrymen. You, you, think, about, you think about John. John was really brash. He was one of the sons of thunder. Uh, you think about Luke was a Gentile. He wasn't even a part of God's chosen, God's chosen people. Um, and Mark is a defector. Mark is a deserter. But Mark is someone who has been used by God in an amazing way. How is it that God can use weak and flawed people? Well, the answer is, is pretty simple. It's in Mark 1.1, what we read. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. See, Mark, Mark was changed by the same gospel that he wrote about. And so what we see from this is that God not only saves weak and flawed people, and God not only forgives weak and flawed people, but God uses weak and flawed people. So as we move through this series, I want you to keep Mark in mind because his story is really our story. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we, uh, we just stand amazed of how you work and how you choose to work through people to accomplish your purposes. And I pray, God, that that we would be the kind of people that, that you use, that you work through. And it's all because of the gospel. It's all because of Jesus' life and Jesus' death and Jesus' resurrection that enables us to be used in the first place. And so I thank you for the story of Mark. I, I thank you that these are real people. This happened in a real place at a real time. And there were real disagreements and real problems and real struggles. But I thank you that what we see is your grace is bigger than all of those combined. And so God, I just ask that we would be a congregation. That we would be men and women and students, boys and girls that would be willing to be used of you. That we would just open our hands and our hearts to say, God, however you want to interrupt our schedule, however, however you want to intervene in my life to serve, to share, to evangelize, to, to love someone. God, we want to tell you today, we're, we're willing to be used of you. And so we just give ourselves to you afresh and anew today. And uh, we pray all of this in Jesus' name and God's people said, amen.